it's a very pervasive thing that I feel affects me, affects everyone that I know in this industry and people yeah. who watch these movies and watch movies from Bollywood. And I just think it's sad. In this episode, I explore the theme of beauty standards, among other topics. I'm interviewing the very talented actor, Richa Murjani, who played Kamala in the hit Netflix show, Never Have I Ever. I feel very privileged to be here at a time where people have paved the way for me. And I wouldn't be where I am today if it had not been for actors who have come much before me and it was much more difficult for them when they when they arrived in town. We discussed the tussle between Western and Eastern beauty standards. Why is it that as South Asian women, we've bought into the whole skinny Western beauty aesthetic? We also explore other topics, like the importance of South Asian representation in entertainment. Richa shares her commitment to shining a light on South Asian talent. I loved my conversation with Richa Murjani. I hope you do too. Besharam, Batamese, Chi Chi, Gandhi, Chalhata, Toba Toba, Oho, Bad Betty. I'm Sangeeta Pillai and this is the Masala Podcast. This multi-award-winning feminist podcast for and by South Asian women is all about cultural taboos from sex, sexuality, mental health, menopause to nipple hair and more. This season is a US special and it took me by surprise. You see, I interviewed these incredible South Asian American women I expected to hear some angst around identity and belonging. Instead, they told me how comfortable they were with both their South Asian and American identity. I confess, this is not the podcast season I set out to record. It's so much more powerful. Hello and welcome to Masala Podcast. So today I have with me someone I've admired from afar for a very long time. Richa Murjani, I watch her on screen, I kind of follow her on Instagram, and I was absolutely thrilled that Richa wanted to be on Masala Podcast. Welcome to Masala Podcast, Richa. I read that your parents were musicians in a Bollywood cover band. That sounds brilliant. Tell me a little bit about that. So, yes, my parents are both musicians, and my mother actually moved to the US when she was seven years old. So, she pretty much grew up here. Although, you know, the first seven years of her life, she was in Mysore. And my dad moved here to get his PhD at UC Berkeley in his 20s. Both of them had always had such a passion for music. My mom was a singer, I mean, is a singer. And my dad likes to play. He's, he's a self-taught musician, so he plays many different instruments. When he went to Berkeley, he uh, became close friends with several other Indian immigrants and they formed a band together to play Hindi cover songs and they needed a female lead singer so they held auditions so much before I ever went for auditions my mom went for auditions <laughs> and she auditioned for the band because she lived in the same area and uh, that's how they met and my dad went to go watch her perform at one of her performances she sang Churalia and he watched her perform and he said, not only is she going to sing in my band, she's going to be my wife. And oh my then God. that's literally what happened. 
That story sounded so much like a Bollywood love story. And it reminded me of all the romantic Bollywood films that I grew up watching in Mumbai. Silsila, which featured my teenage crush Amitabh Bachchan. The story mirrored some saucy rumors involving the stars of that film. I also remember watching the old black and white film Mughal-e-Azam about the love affair between a crown prince and a court dancer. Then there's the favorite of so many, Dilwale Dulhaniya Le Jayenge or DDLJ as it's referred to. But you know, now looking back and reflecting on these classic Bollywood romances, so much misogyny in so many of them. But that's for another conversation. For now, let's get back to Richa and hear more about how she grew up in the Bay Area. I think a lot of people think of it obviously as, you know, the tech hub, it's Silicon Valley and that's all true, but there's also a thriving art scene in the Bay Area and a huge South Asian community. So I grew up totally immersed in culture, in arts. I grew up doing Indian classical dance. My grandmother had a company that she started of her own for over 40 years called Bay Area Performing Arts where she brought the the most famous musicians from India like Zakir Hussain and Shiv Kumar Sharma all the biggest Indian classical musicians she had concerts for them in the bay area she was the producer so i grew up surrounded by all these things and naturally that led me to having a passion for storytelling and acting and dance so i really think that you know the my roots as an artist definitely began in the bay area you were saying there were a lot of south asians in the area like did it feel like you were part of that was what was it like did it feel like you were part of that community yes absolutely you know we have a big extended family in the bay area and i say extended because that's you know our family friends who i grew up with they feel more like cousins and sisters and brothers they don't just feel like friends of the family i felt like i had almost two different lives one life was at school where I mean there were South Asian people in my school and I had a lot of South Asian friends but still you know it was an American school and definitely didn't feel like I was I don't know immersed in my culture at school but then you know the weekends was my second life and that was when we would be with our extended family and going to melas and I don't know other performances and concerts and uh spending time with people from my community hmm I always come across this phrase about like leading a double life as as somebody from the diaspora. I see, I hear this in Britain, I hear this in America. Did it feel like that in a sense that there was this Indian part of you and then there was this American part of you? Yes, absolutely. I don't know. It 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 was something that I had to navigate and it definitely led to identity crisis just like for many yeah. people that yeah. we know. But one thing I'm very grateful for is that my parents not it was never forced you know they never forced me to connect to my culture and do cultural things it was always just very organic and natural and and i always loved my culture i grew up watching beautiful women in indian movies but all these women had curves they were real women whether it was the glamorous madhubala in old black and white movies or Madhuri Dixit doing her super sexy dhak dhak song none of these gorgeous women were what you'd call skinny but now when i see bollywood films or even south asian fashion magazines 
the aesthetic has definitely changed to a Western, thin and skinny look. I think this obsession with weight is designed to keep women feeling bad about themselves, constantly striving to be thinner. It got me thinking, when did our South Asian culture, which loved sensual, voluptuous shapes, switch to this Western beauty standard of slimness? When did we move from celebrating real South Asian women with their luscious curves and start worshipping at the altar of thinness? When, when you do Indian classical dance, it's, that's, that's a direct connection to culture and heritage that I don't think anything else can give you. When you I mean, yeah. when, I, when, when you're not living in the motherland. So your kind of whole journey to become an actor, did you ever see people like you who were actors when you were younger, when you were maybe like, I don't know, as a teenager or whenever that, that dream started for you? Did you see anyone like you that you thought, oh, I could be this person? Definitely not in Hollywood, but in mm. Bollywood, yes. And yeah, that's yeah, why I yeah, grew yeah. up thinking, because I, I, you know, since before I can even remember, I wanted to be an actor, but I always thought as a young girl and even up until college, I thought, if, well, if I want to be an actor, I have to move to India because that's the only place where I can do it. And, and also, I, I loved Bollywood films. And it was really where I, you know, watching Bollywood films is what made me want to become an actor. What was the journey like to become this big Hollywood actor that you are now? It can't have been easy, I'm guessing. It has not and still isn't easy. And I don't think mm. it'll ever be easy. I'm sure people understand that it's not easy to be an artist, but unless and until you've actually tried it, I don't think people can really comprehend how difficult it is. I would never do anything else. It's been the most fulfilling journey. And, you know, the power of storytelling and art and what we can do through telling stories on television and in film, even in theater, I don't think there's anything else that can have such an impact on the world. How long did it take you? To maybe from that dream of like, okay, this is what I want to do, to actually sort of doing it? How many years was it? It took many years. You know, like I said, I, I grew up always wanting to be an actor and I knew that was all I ever wanted to do. And I was so fortunate and blessed to mm. have a family that nurtured that and supported that because, mm. because of coming from an artistic family. They never once told me that, you know, no, you have to be a doctor. You have to be a lawyer. I never heard that once from my family. So I'm so mm. grateful for mm. that. Although maybe they should have, because it might have, you know, maybe it would have been a better path for me. I don't know, but <laughs> I'm joking. So, you know, I, I grew up always obviously wanting to be an actor. I went to college. After college, I moved to LA. That was about 12 years ago. And I mean, I guess you could say that that's really when my journey as a professional actor began. Mm. But it took many, many years and many hundreds, if not thousands of auditions to get something like Never Have I Ever. Wow. And I think that's the point I was trying to make because from the outside, somebody who looks at your journey or any, you know, successful actor like, oh, you know, Rich is in this amazing Never Have Ever. And, but without really realizing the thousands of auditions that you've just said. And that's for any creative, any artist, any writer, any actor, like, I, I think. And I think I just want to talk about that because I, I don't think enough is talked about that especially in the world of that we live in, like social media, whatever, whatever. Like, hey, someone's famous and someone's making it. But we don't talk about the journey and the kind of relentless belief and faith and trying to make it happen, right? 
I know that one of the things you feel very passionately about is shining a light on kind of South Asian diaspora and representation in the arts, TV, film. Why is this important to you? Oh, man. If it wasn't important to me, I don't think I would really have a purpose as an artist. You know, if if we, and when I say we, I mean as South Asian creatives and, and artists are not fighting for authentic representation, nobody else is going to be fighting for that. I can guarantee yeah. you that. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I... I feel very privileged to be here at a time where people have paved the way for me and I wouldn't be where I am today if it had not been for actors who have come much before me and it was much more difficult for them when they arrived in town. Even, you know, for myself, when I moved here 12 years ago, I mean, the opportunities that I'm seeing today and the people I'm seeing on screen today that did not exist when I first moved here. So things have really changed a lot. And that does not mean it's all good now. There's still so much to fight for. And that's something that I try to never forget is as much progress that has been made. We are still very, very behind. And if we get complacent, that's the dangerous thing to do because there's still so much to fight for. For me, it's really heartening when I see what's happening in the US, you know, shows like Never Have I Ever. And there's just so much coming out of the US and all of you are doing incredible work. It makes me really, really happy. I've just come back from a month in New York. So this is the longest I've spent. And I kind of saw what South Asian creatives are doing in the US. And it made me really proud, really happy, really excited. I mean, I don't know any of you, but just the fact that you're out there, you're these incredible women Make creating big change. I don't think it's happening in the same way in the UK. Just seeing that, you know, it just made me really, really happy. I also loved, I spoke to a lot of, you know, South Asian women and folks and creatives, and there seems to be a level of comfort in this duality of being American and South Asian. And I don't see that as much in the UK. So here you're either British or you're Indian or Pakistani or whatever. Whereas in America, it feels like everybody's like, I'm, I don't know, Italian American, I'm Indian American, I'm this and that. Has it always been like this? This kind of double-barreled identity that I think of as? That's really interesting. I'm glad you shared that with me because I didn't know there was such a stark difference. But honestly, I don't think it's that different, to be honest, because no, I don't think it's always been that way here. I think that it is, we are definitely in a time where it is cool to be Asian mm. or South Asian or, or or really just a person of color. I don't think yeah. that it was always that way. I did not grow up feeling like it was cool to be Indian. I was very proud of my culture. And it, if anything, it just angered me that people didn't see how glorious my culture was and how mm. amazing we are and how beautiful everything about being South Asian is. But I don't think I, I think I might've been kind of alone in that. I know a lot of people who were ashamed of being Indian and, and I don't blame mm. them. We lived in a very different time. So I think things have changed in that sense. And I do think that obviously, you know, speaking of representation, that's another reason why representation is so important because I do believe that with authentic representation, people feel seen and they feel a sense of belonging. And, you know, shows like Never Have I Ever, you know, that's just the scratching the surface. But I do yeah. 
feel like, and I've seen with my own eyes and and heard stories from both young people in high school or younger, (laughs) and even people from my generation and older who say that this show has given them such a deep sense of belonging and a sense of confidence in themselves and in their culture that they didn't have before. The other thing that really struck me in, in this month in the US was women, South Asian American women are killing it. Oh my God. Like I went into Sephora and there were like six, maybe five or six brands led by, you know, like hair care, fashion, makeup. Uh, there was food, there's this, there's that. And again, that's not happening in the UK. Like, not at all. I was, and I've been saying this to a lot of people since I've come, I've only been back for like two weeks and I've been telling people that there's a real sense of South Asian female power, you know, in America at the moment, you know, in New York and LA and some of the other kind of bigger places. Where does that come from? When did that start? I'm really, really curious. Yeah, it's something I've noticed too. I think it's really something that I've noticed in the past four or five years. I don't think I ever Mm. really saw it that way before five years ago. I do not know the answer to that. I don't know why, Mm. but I, if I Mm. really think about it, I mean, I think it obviously must have something to do with the fact that, you know, we are in this, we are now in, in the generation where we have the freedom and the ability to be able to pursue different Mm. types of careers and professions that Mm. our parents did not have the privilege to do because, you know, most of us are children of immigrants who came to this country and they didn't have those options. They, you know, our our mothers did not, were mostly homemakers. They didn't have the option to, you know, become actors or work it for a magazine or go into politics. You know, they just, it was a very different time. And I think it's yeah. important to remember that as much as we are such a huge part of the fabric of society, we're still a very new minority to this country. Yeah. When people complain about how, you know, uh, South Asians never had a chance before, I'm like, well, we are still pretty new to this country. And, mm. you know, Black people have been here much longer than us. And that's why, yeah. you know, it's taking us a little bit more time to catch up. But yeah. I do feel a lot of hope. I mean, I've seen so much progress and... I think if we just continue on this path, things will be so different for the future generations. For me, it was a real difference. There was a real stark, really positive difference. And I, it, it made me feel really, really happy, actually. Something you mentioned earlier that I wanted to pick up on, Kathak. You're a professionally trained Kathak dancer. So tell me about this, like dance. What does it mean in, in your life, in your world? It means everything to me. I mean, it's such a big part of my identity that. Mm. I don't even know who I would be had I not been a dancer growing up, if that makes sense. And as I said, it was, you know, beyond just being a dancer, learning Indian classical dance. So it, mm. it's so much a part of my identity as an artist, but as a South Asian person and someone from the diaspora. And I feel so, so blessed and also just grateful to my family for, you know, encouraging me to learn and to continue learning because a lot of, I think it's very common for South Asian kids to grow up learning an instrument or Hindustani yeah. classical or, or South yeah, Indian yeah. classical or, yeah. you know, some kind of dance form. Yeah. But most people don't continue it. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. But I'm just so happy that my parents encouraged me to continue and that I stuck with it because it's not easy. And it is, uh, you know, to really be a serious classical 
artist, whether that's a musician or a dancer, you really have to dedicate your life to it. Yeah. And there's a huge yeah. part of me that yeah. actually feels, has always felt torn between that and acting. Yeah. Not that I yeah. can't do both, which I do, but you know, if I really wanted to be an accomplished Kathak dancer, I would have had to really dedicate my life to that. But it sounds like it's really informed your life in many ways. It, it just sounds like the way you speak about it. Dance is so much about kind of connecting with the body, isn't it? And being in the body. When I look at your social posts and your Instagram, you seem really comfortable in your body. That's what it comes across. And it's to me as, as a woman and as a feminist kind of living in this day and age and as an older person as well, there's such a conflict between kind of women and how comfortable we are allowed to be in our bodies and how we've got to almost fight for that comfort and that sense of confidence. Confidence is a weird word, but do you feel that confidence? Have you always had it? I will say, I, reflecting on it as you're speaking, no, I have not always been confident in my body. I've always had a lot of insecurities and still do. But, you know, there are times where I feel more confident than other times and certain parts of myself that I feel more confident about than other parts. And that's something that I'm just continuing to navigate and, and learning to accept. But I will say that dance has given me a lot of confidence and I mm -hmm. feel the most confident when I'm dancing. It's, mm -hmm. it's, and acting for that matter. I think when I'm, when I'm immersed yeah. in what I love to do so much. Yeah. Vanity goes out the window. I don't care what I look like. I don't care what my body looks like. I'm just so uh, in the flow, if that makes sense. I'm way more uh, self-conscious and not confident when I have to be myself. I just wanted to talk to you about this Western versus South Asian ideal. Have you ever thought about it? I mean, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. I think that it's very interesting just to see how those standards have evolved over the years, especially in our culture, because of being so influenced by Western standards of beauty, which are extremely toxic and unrealistic. And Hollywood plays a major role in perpetuating those toxic standards. And it's a very pervasive thing that I feel affects me, affects everyone that I know in this industry and people yeah. who watch these movies and watch movies from Bollywood. And I just think it's sad because it's not realistic, it's not sustainable, and it's not healthy. And it, it isn't even who we are genetically. And I think that's what bothers me. Like we are, as Asian women, we're curvy. Like, you know, we've got hips and breasts and bellies and it's who we are genetically. And I feel like there's all this pressure to fit into something that we're not. And where on one hand, we're like embracing who we are, like we're eating our rotis and, you know, making kichdi and I'm making appams or whatever, you know. So there's that part of us that we've kind of reconnected with or we are in the process of reconnecting with. But in terms of our beauty aesthetic, we're still kind of, I don't know, buying into the Western standard because is it because we live in the West? But, you know, everywhere is dominated by the West. And I think that bothers me, who we are naturally, who we are genetically isn't cool, isn't beautiful, where I think it is beautiful. I agree. And I think it's, I don't know what the solution is, but I definitely mm. do think it's a systemic problem. I have been, I have never in my life thought that I was overweight. I've always been underweight. I've always been the skinny person in, in my, you know, the group of groups of people I would hang out with. Yeah. 
And now I'm told, oh, this designer may not be able to dress you because you're not a size zero. And I'm like, excuse me? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. It's just absolutely sickening. It's like we're constantly being made to feel awful about ourselves. And imagine if, if you're made to feel that you're like one of the most beautiful women I know. You're on, you know, you're on our TV screens. You're, and if you're made to feel like that, like I really feel for the rest of us, you know, how are we supposed to kind of, to feel beautiful? And I want us to feel beautiful. Why should we not feel beautiful? And that's right? why I'm saying it's, it's a systemic problem because, you know, we're, we're literally told that there's something wrong with you. And that's why you're not going to be dressed for this occasion, or you're not going to be invited to this thing, or you're not going to be, you know, the star of, I, I'm just saying, you know, in general, not that those things have all been told to me, but these are the things that I hear. And so people feel like they have to conform to these ideals. And like I said, I don't know what the solution is, but I do think that having conversations like this is very important. And it's just, I think we have to, as much as we have to fight for authentic representation, I think that also applies to authentic representation of what our bodies should look like or do look like. Absolutely. And the right to exist as we are and, and not have to, it, it always to me feels like to be a woman is like this goal that's always out of your reach. You know, you're like to be a beautiful woman hey, you've got to, I don't know, work out more, eat less, you know, ha have, be on a diet, whatever, you know, buy these pills, whatever there is. And it's, it's always to make us feel not good enough, not beautiful enough, not desirable enough. It makes me really, really angry. I don't have the solution either, but it just feels like I, I want to talk about it and I want us to talk about it so that there's somewhere there's a chance for change in, in, in some way. I think that the focus should just always be on what makes you feel healthy and what makes you feel strong and what you look like, it will be a result of that. Do you get many messages from South Asian women saying, oh, wow, I love how you look or I want to look like you or you make me feel good or any of these things? Yeah, maybe I do. I would say more so I get messages like, I just love what you're doing for South Asian, for our community and how you're paving mm. the way. And yeah, maybe I get a little bit of both, but maybe, maybe those are the message that's, messages that stand out to me more. I moved to the UK from India almost two decades ago. And I've never seen real first-generation Indian women like me represented in Western TV or media. That's why it was such a joy to see Kamala's character, played by Richa in Never Have I Ever. I loved how Kamala keeps her Indian side even as she discovers the freedoms that America offers her. I also love the fact that Kamala is a fully rounded character in the show, where so many Indian characters in Western shows are like a pale pastiche of real Indian people. Think of characters like Apu in The Simpsons, whose voice was such a racist caricature. Talking of voices, I do love the fact that Kamala's accent stays sort of Indian in the show. And let me tell you, there's a subtle yet powerful pressure on immigrants like me to sound more British or American or Australian, to just change ourselves and fit in. As somebody who's from India and is Indian and now lives in the UK, certain times it feels like you have to earn 
you know, you're not quite there yet as, as a first generation person. It's very subtle and it's, it's a, sort of like a little bit of racism even within the South Asian community. Absolutely. I think South Asians are some of the most racist people in the world. <laughs> I'm glad you said it, not me. It's true. We have to, it's true. We have to uh, it's... learn to recognize yeah. that. So true. So true. Like someone told me there's this whole fresh off the boat, freshy. Uh, it's apparently a thing in Britain where if you've just arrived like me, even though it's been 18 years, you're still fresh off the board and you've got to earn your, your place. So, you know, like stay in your lane, earn your place kind of thing. So as an Indian girl, like I loved how Kamala was equal to everybody else. She was a, a, char- a real character, not like this, you know, in the sidelines kind of character, not an oppressed Indian woman, you know, which we see a lot of. Tell me a little bit about her and how she kind of evolved. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you say that because I also did feel that, you know, throughout the four seasons, Kamala did have to, in a way, not prove herself, but, you know, you know, we saw the whole storyline of her at her lab. Yeah. And that yeah. wasn't only, it didn't only have to do with her being a South Asian, but it was, it was more so, I guess, to do with being a woman, but but really being a woman of color, because this is a real yeah. thing that exists in the world of STEM for women of color yeah. is they are not taken seriously. They are not given the same opportunities. They don't get the credit that they deserve. And so I really thought it was brilliant that they included that storyline. I know it was not, you know, a very long storyline, but it was something that was very important. And I I received so many messages from young and older women of color and South Asian women who are in STEM who say, this is exactly what I go through. And I'm so happy that you showed this because it makes me feel less alone. That in itself is amazing. We never see fully rounded South Asian characters, right? And it was such a joy to see Kamala and see Kamala evolve along with all the other characters. And I loved how you played her as well. And it's, it's, it's very heartening to hear that other women in STEM kind of careers and jobs felt seen and heard. So that is really, really beautiful. Let's talk about Indira, your character in the new Hulu series Fargo. Tell me a little bit about Indira. Oh, wow. Well, um, to pivot from Kamala there couldn't be <laughs> more different, but also they have some similarities. One uh, fun fact that I didn't realize was that Indra is also another name for goddess Lakshmi who sits on a lotus flower, which we know is Kamala. So I thought that was a little bit cosmic. (laughs) But, uh, you know, for people who have not seen Fargo yet, one thing I'll say is that if you want to watch the season that I'm in, you don't have to watch the previous seasons because every, and they call it installments, every installment is a totally different story with a new cast and new everything. So this is installment five and it's a totally standalone uh, season. Indra is a cop. Fargo has always had a central female cop character all the way from the movie with Frances McDormand Mm. playing the Marge Gunderson role. And this is the first time that not only is a woman of color the main cop, but it Mm. is a South Asian woman. So It was very exciting to me when I got the scripts and I hope it's exciting to the community. And she's a very, very important character who kind of represents the moral center of all the quirky, crazy characters. But at the same time, she's very messy and has a lot of uh, 
personal issues that she's dealing with. No, that sounds brilliant. I haven't seen it yet, but I I'm really looking forward to watching it. Yeah. Tell me what's it like to to play these women, you know, and and you're someone who's been an actor for a little while and now these are the characters that you're playing. These Indian women, these real women with real stuff going on in their lives, whether it's Kamala or Indira, what what does that feel like? It feels I mean, I just feel very fortunate to get to play these women because I feel like all of these women are extensions of myself. And, you know, I'm not the kind of actor that gets lost in characters. If anything, I try to find who I am in these characters and how I relate to them, even if they're very different from me. There's always something that I find a little connection to. And I feel like I've grown so much from playing these characters, not just as an actor, but as a person. And I'm really excited that I got to do something that was so drastically different from Never Have I Ever to be able to challenge myself as an artist and also show the world that I can do something totally different. With Never Have I Ever, because the whole story is so South Asian, the cultural nuances are, you know, incredible. I'm sure you've heard this before a million times, but praying to Krishna and, you know, like the the, the kind of very subtle cues of our culture, they're kind of on our screens and we've never seen that before. What was the experience like being in that, in that world with other actors, all South Asian, the stories being South Asian, the references being South Asian? What was that like? Honestly, it felt like a dream. It felt like a dream when I was there doing it. And even now reflecting on it and thinking about it, it feels like a dream that never actually really happened. (laughs) Because it is so rare that has has never happened and I hope it happens again, but it has never happened before until never have I ever, never had I ever been on a set like that before. I, you know, I, I would honestly driving from my home to Universal Studios, which is where we shot every morning, I would just be counting my blessings and, and just honestly in sometimes in disbelief that that's, that was my job and that's what I got to do that, that that was something that. I had the privilege to do and to tell that story and to be surrounded by people wearing South Asian clothes and eating South Asian food on set and really feeling like we owned that set, which is just a feeling that I had never had before. Wow. And it's sad that you've never had that before, isn't it? Like thinking about it, anybody from, not just you, I mean, like we've never had that before. It is sad, but I do think they're always, you know, Something always has to be the first thing, right? Yeah. And I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what other opportunities come from Never Have I Ever creating a path. And I, and I have seen firsthand how much more of a spotlight our community is getting and how many more opportunities are being created. Absolutely. And I think for me, what's particularly heartening is, you know, the, the thing you're told is that if you do something so culturally specific, no, it, it's not going to work. It's not going to be successful. Yeah. And, and this like, was an well, example that that's not like, true. Yeah. Exactly. Like, look at how it worked and look at how successful it was. Yes. So to me, that's super, super heartening. Yeah. Do you still, are you, I, I imagine, and this is probably just in my head, that everyone's really good friends from Never Have I Ever and you've all stayed connected and you're all in each other's lives and you like hang out with each other. Is, yeah. is that true? Or is it just in my head? It, no, it's not just in your head. We are definitely, you know, we grew up together on that set. I mean, 
Purna and I are literally best friends now. We talk to each other every single day. I'll probably FaceTime her right after this. But <laughs> it was an intergenerational cast, right? So we're all kind of different ages. But, you know, the younger kids who played the high school students, including my three, you know, like they were literally babies when we did season one. And it's just been yeah. incredible to see how everyone has grown up together. And by the end, it really felt like a family. I think there's just something about, you know, that cast being on on a show like that, that specific show with a cast like that, you know, even if we all go on to do different things, I think we will always have that connection. It's very special. So if you were sitting and talking to Richa five years old, what would you say to her? Five years old, wow. Oh, six years old. A young, a young version of you. A young Richa, sure. I would just say... Don't ever let any, I don't know, it's it's hard to say because I feel like I've accomplished everything I've accomplished because of who I've always been. And I had to make mistakes along the way and I had to learn certain lessons. So I almost don't want to change that trajectory. <laughs> but if it would give some comfort, I would just say never let anyone dim your light or apologize for being the way you are. You're perfect exactly as you are. That's beautiful. And is there anything you'd like to say to listeners of Masala Podcast, something that helps them, inspires them in their own life journeys? They're all South Asian women. Like my, that's my audience. Oh, I don't feel like I'm qualified to give advice to all the South Asian women listening to this. No, to be no, 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 no. Anything from your own life. It doesn't have to be like, you, I'm not holding you responsible for inspiring every South Asian woman in the world. But what would you say that would help? Because You've done it. You're successful. You're kind of owning it. Thank you. I don't know. I mean, if anything, I would just tell them what I would tell myself, that this is your moment. And, you know, you're living in the best time possible to be able to accomplish everything you've ever wanted to accomplish. So don't let any opportunity pass you by. That's beautiful. Is it? I don't Thank know. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. Because it's also allowing ourselves to, to believe that it's possible. Because if you live in a world that tells you, it's, it's, we often won't even allow ourselves to reach for something, right? And it's almost like somebody gives you permission to say, say you're saying this or somebody else or me saying, hey, you know, it's possible. You can you know, now's the time and there's never been a better time, which is what you're saying. And it's absolutely right. Like I saw it. There's never been a better time to be a South Asian woman, to be doing the thing you want to do, whatever it is. You want to have a STEM career. You want to be an actor. You want to have a podcast, whatever it is. It is possible and it has never been more possible than it is right now. This has been such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure to have you in Masala Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi Hi, Bad Betty.